0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. My name is Shelley Graff, and it's good to be here with you tonight. I'm the Associate Director here at Common Ground. So Mark and I have been exploring the practices of the heart during these weekly practice groups for a few weeks now. So I'll pick that up again tonight. And I wanna talk more specifically about the power of the feminine tonight. And about embracing feminine energies in the service of awakening. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about gender. And I'm not placing a priority on feminine energies or masculine energies, but just pointing to the power of balance. And it really seems that we tend to overemphasize masculine qualities in our practice here in the West, and probably for good reason. We tend to overemphasize masculine qualities generally speaking in the West. Um, But our practice calls us to wake up to what's invisible. And so we get to practice here too. Western culture tends to really value masculine energies. So these energies of competition, um, and even we might notice in the, the Dharma Hall, kind of sizing ourselves up against each other and are we sitting as tall as the person or as still as the person near us or as long as the person near us or I want to get there first, I'm going to get into the hall first tonight and I'm going to be as quiet as possible, I'm going to be a really good meditator, Right? I'm going to be a good yogi. So that kind of spirit of competition. but. What we don't usually see is the, the shadow side of even these energies, like there's nothing wrong with competition, but when it's overemphasized, then we tend to miss that, that competitive nature just fuels self-doubt, right? Because there's never an end to being a good yogi. There's always some, someone who can sit longer, or straighter, or stiller, or you know, whatever our projections are onto the person in the room, be more mindful in any of the ways. And then these other values like the concrete and the linear. Right, So we have to do things, follow the this kind of linear, this linear form or expectations that are that we have for ourselves even so much as you know, it, how it defines our, our practice and the things that we do to practice and the things that we think are practice and the things that we think are not practice, right? So we're going to be mindful by coming to Common Ground on Wednesday nights and that's how we're going to get our spiritual practice fix in. But that's only 30 minutes a week that we're practicing and what about the other 23 and a half hours during the day, right? But, you know, so the kind of rigid... Rules that we have for ourselves might be one way to think about the concrete and the linear. And then overvaluing intellectual ways of knowing. So we talk about being mindful or being here, being awake, being with our lives or with our experience. Our knowing, knowing, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to know? And when we think about what it means to know, we often think about that in an intellectual way, right? It means to know that wisdom is information, is knowledge, right? But we don't think about these other ways of knowing, like embodiment. What does that mean to be embodied in our lives? It's not a test, but we get to explore that, right? This value of the feminine or honoring of the feminine really calls us to to explore that, to experiment, to get to know, oh, what is embodiment like? What does the earth have to teach me? What do social movements have to teach me? And we tend to value this individual experience over the collective experience, right? This idea even that there's something that's just special to me, right? We sit down and we do, we did some equanimity practice today. Some balancing of understanding love that totally accepts, right? That quality, the strength of love that accepts the way things are. So cultivating that tonight. And it can feel like that's my experience or that's my practice until there's an invitation to include others in that practice people in front or behind you, other people in your lives, but just that felt sense of other bodies and that, oh, this energy is moving between us, this collective energy, this interdependence. And there's often a value of doing energy over being energy, right, which gets in the way, especially when we're trying to relax. And being able to relax is a really important aspect of meditation or mindfulness practice. Because a mind that's uptight and trying to do it right or trying to get to the next step or attain the next goal is only going to get tighter and tighter and tighter and breed competition and self-doubt, right? You've probably seen this in your practice. Even if you're new, you might have seen that tonight. Like sit down, what do I do? Follow the instructions, okay, now what? Right? Like I wanna get somewhere. Okay, now what what's supposed to happen next? What's supposed I wonder if this is working? This isn't really working. I should probably just give it up. I'll try again, listen to the instructions, try to get somewhere. Oh this is not working, right? Just this on and on and on but learn, but needing to balance that wholesome, the wholesomeness of effort, the wholesomeness of, of aspiring to be a good human being, to live a healthy life, to be awake in our lives, to be mindful. Those are wholesome and healthy, skillful aspirations. But we need to balance that energy that brings us to the cushion or brings us to common ground, right? That energy that actually gets us here that doing energy, with the capacity to relax and just be, to receive, to accept. So learning from nature, being embodied, understanding embodiments, intuition, these are other ways of knowing. These are feminine energies that we can um, learn to see, right? So that we have more strategies, more sources of knowing right, in our lives so that we're not just dependent on the handful of um, strategies that dominate our Western culture. So we have to learn how to cultivate these other ways of knowing or it would be in our best interest so that we have more strategies for awakening so that we have more ways of validating our lived experience like oh what is it when you know I just have this feeling or this inner sense of this is true like what is what do we call that what if it doesn't have an intellectual like what if we can't put into words to it what if it just is something that is known or felt in the body? Can that be true too? So the these divine abodes, these practices of the heart, the Brahma-viharas, this, uh, that's a funny way of saying practices of the heart. <laughs> really, I think, call us to reclaim the feminine. So this feminine, this um, is really the the Brahma Viharas or the practices of, of the heart are the most, it's like the most radical form of inclusion, right? The heart that cares, the heart that doesn't have a preference, the heart that says yes to our lived experience. It can seem sometimes like we include the practices of the heart as an add-on, right? Like the real the real practice is mindfulness and sitting here and understanding impermanence and seeing change. And if that comes with some kindness, that's great, but it's not necessary, right? Do you ever notice that flavor, that attitude that's just kind of subtly there in the heart or mind? Like, oh. I don't really need this. But if it comes along, that's good. But it's actually way more integrated than that. It's not a this or. It's not a, um, it's it's not like we embrace the masculine and or the feminine. It's more of an integrated experience. So it's more of like this mindfulness, this ability to be with experience has to necessarily come with an energy of love, or care, or friendliness, or kindness. And these are the brahma-viharas. So metta, metta is this general feeling of kindness or benevolence, right? And then this energy of benevolence or kindness to suffering or pain. Like the heart that breaks or is willing to care about someone's pain or our own pain, the broken heart, this despair, this anger that's here. That would be the expression of compassion or karuna. And then the heart that cares about joy, right? Because we have joys in our life, too. It's not all a, it's not all a um, negative story, <laughs> We have 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that we experience in our lives. So the joy, the heart that can feel um, content and really enlivened by someone else's joy, that's the experience of mudita, the third of the divine abodes. And then the last one is upeka, or equanimity. And I'm going to fill that out a little bit more. But before I get there, I want to just um, talk about this story in the in the suttas or the the Buddhism was at the time of the Buddha the Buddha's teachings it was an oral tradition so things weren't written down right away until really 400 years after the death of of the Buddha and then they're written down in these books called we call them the suttas and so there's this one famous story of um, centering around this person, Sujata. And Sujata, so Sujata was this um, woman and, and she, um, where to start with this? <laughs> so the Buddha, when he left, when um, Siddhartha Gotama left his fancy palace and all his riches and wealth and took off to understand what, it meant to wake up, right? He went off wandering around and he he fell into these ascetic practices with others, right? He was just doing what he could do. He was a radical experimenter. So it's interesting that we have developed such rigid habits around form like practice is this, this, it's not this. It, you Practice when you go to the hall, but not in our daily life so much. But he was wandering around in the forest and among people and just figuring things out, following his nose and experimenting and um, seeing what worked. So he started, he took up these really extreme aesthetic practices. So he was depriving the, the overall, the overarching attitude was trying to conquer the body. Not be embodied, not understand what it means to live an embodied life, but to kind of rise above the body, right? So he was doing, he was starving himself, he wasn't bathing, his hair was all mangled, right? He was super skinny at the time when he met Sujata. And at, as the story goes, one morning he woke up and he was completely depleted of energy and he tried to use the bathroom and he just collapsed on the ground. So he's sitting there and in the, at the same time, Sujata is this woman and she had been cultivating this like very generous heart, for hours. She had been making this milk rice or this porridge, right? It took her all day to kind of labor over this wonderful meal. And she sees this mangled old person who was probably really stinky and looked weird and just her heart really opened, if you can imagine this. And she brought him this bowl of porridge and offered it to him. And I don't know if this is, we don't really know exactly how these details go because we weren't there and it was an oral tradition, but one of the ways that I've heard the story told is that she offered it to many of the other ascetics, and they all said no, right? No, it's not eating, conquering the body, rising above the body, I'm going to stay the course with my spiritual practice in this way. But the Buddha accepted the meal. And he ate the meal. And he really appreciated the pleasantness of the meal, right? Now another important part of the story is that as he was sitting there, he remembered, before, right before that, he remembered being a boy and being a, and being a boy and following his breath and the simple pleasantness of just being content with his own breath, right? And so it seems like he, the Buddha remembered that story And that led him to say yes to the meal, to experiment with pleasant and acceptance of this generosity, right? And this changed everything. So in this way, the Buddha really embraced the feminine. He started to understand what it means to have a balanced mind, that the path forward to awakening isn't just in conquering and doing and striving, that it also is important to relax and to find ways to balance that mind that is um, forcing forward, right? The mind that's the heart that just wants to go and do and achieve. And this acceptance, this eating of the food and appreciating the pleasantness of it changed everything for the Buddha and as its as it goes he continued on his path through the night and was fully awakened by the end of the evening right and it, and he was experimenting with devotional practices another different way of knowing than this intellectual um, value that we have being with the energy of the forest, devoting, really embracing the trees and appreciating the trees. He would gaze at the trees for long periods of time, just really feeling that interconnection with nature. And then the last thing that happened right before his awakening, he was full of self-doubt, right? Full of self-doubt, like what right do you have to be here? What right do you have to this path? And then it is said that the Buddha touched the ground, and as earth as my witness, he said, as earth as my witness, (coughs) I have a right to this, right? I have a right. So that real, like, intentional connection with the earth as witness, as part of his embodied experience, So we need to trust ourselves on this path. We need to trust and be willing to experiment and explore different ways of knowing, different ways of being in our lives so that we can experience the fruit and see what works, see what balances, what brings us back into some kind of um, place, some mind state, some experience that allows us to really feel what's moving in the heart. Because if things start to get too tight, if we start to be too rigid, or um, things become overly difficult, then it makes it really hard, right? We have to find a way to soften. We have to find a way for the heart to be tender to care. So. The fourth of the Brahma-viharas is equanimity, and equanimity is a deep resting in the limitations of the impact of love, right? So the first three, love or benevolence, compassion, joy, appreciative joy, you can really feel the, the tenderness in those feelings, those attitudes. And you can probably remember them from your lives, like, oh, yeah, there's just like a feeling, like a warmth in the heart when, there's, when the heart is joyful, or there's a real warmth in the heart when we come face-to-face with someone's suffering, our own suffering, when the heart really opens to that. There's a real warmth there. But equanimity can feel a little bit different. Because equanimity embraces all of the warmth of that love and also brings with it, the strength of acceptance, the strength of like, oh, this is true. Like there's an absence of denial, an absence of rejection, an an absence of preferencing something else, another experience. So it's an understanding, equanimity comes with it, an understanding that that even though love is limitless, that there's no end to the strength of that feeling in the heart, right? That it can grow and grow and grow and we can really feel the impact of love in the heart. But it doesn't, it doesn't feed us. It doesn't clothe us. It doesn't generate shelter. It doesn't stop others from doing things that might be unskillful it sometimes doesn't stop us from doing things that are unskillful. Even with an abundance of love in our heart, sometimes we make terrible choices, right? We may get up every morning with solid intentions for how we're gonna live our life, and in the the first two hours, maybe the first 30 minutes, we're making a choice to have an extra cup of coffee than we probably should have, or who knows what, right? Not do the things that we set out to do. So equanimity totally accepts this. In one of the books of suttas, one of the books of stories of the Buddha, this is a description of equanimity. Just as a rocky mountain is not moved by storms, so sights, sounds, tastes, smells, contacts, and ideas, whether desirable or undesirable, will never stir one of steady nature whose mind is firm and free. So this word upekka, or equanimity, has can have two definitions. Well, it's, it can actually be translated from two different words at the time of the Buddha. There's the language that was spoken was Pali, and so they're two translations of this word that we call equanimity. One is upeka, which means to look over. It really points to the power of, of, of observation, of intimacy or mindfulness. It's that observation, that capacity, when, we're, when mindfulness gets stronger, when we develop um, a habit of continuous mindfulness, then we also it also brings with it patience. Right. So this is the kind of strength that comes from our, this upekka, this observing, this power of the observational mind um, is what we experience through our vipassana, through our insight or our mindfulness practice. And the other word is, and I'm not a scholar, so I'm probably going to get this wrong, but tatra-maja-tata. And it, this, this is the one I really like, because even though it's not translated this from this word that often, but it means to stand up in the middle of all this, right? So that balanced mind, that can both feel deeply and have the strength of yes, that strength of acceptance, the strength of I know this is really the way it is, even though it's unpleasant, even though it's like this, it's unpleasant. I know this is the truth, right? And, because, and the, this heart, this human expression can actually be OK, even with great difficulties, right? So human beings know this experience. There are people throughout our history that have endured great difficulty and have some seeming resilience. We might use that word resilience. But I think this word resilience really points to that balance of mind. And it's not a a disconnection. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions. It's the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. But what it's not is indifference. It's not condoning actions either. It's not the absence of action. Equanimity begins from that place of connection, right? That real intimacy, that softness, that tenderness, the feminine the feminine quality of love. It's from that place that this strength emerges. So it, it actually spills out of that felt sense of love. So our ability, our capacity to connect with the truth of the our truth of our lives in the deepest, the most tender way will actually support the arising of that strength. Shinsen Young was a, is a Western insight teacher and I love his description of equanimity. Equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. Thus, although seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel and as such is the opposite of suppression. As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what is appropriate to the situation. It's a little ironic that I'm talking about the feminine and read that seriously intellectual description. (laughs) But it's good. It's quite a different place. So you might find yourself questioning the value of equanimity. Even with those descriptions, right, it can, we can start to wonder, like, well, is it close to indifference? Or what is the difference between a balanced acceptance and indifference or aloofness, right? And this is the wonderful part about the path is that we're always invited to go and see for ourselves, to go and look and try to explore that using our mindfulness practice, using our insight practice or our ability to be with our lives to really see like, oh, is there some value, is there some difference between a balanced, tender, loving and accepting heart and an indifferent heart? And we can also explore what's the utility of this balanced heart that can fully feel, fully break. What's the utility of that? And how is that different? And how is that utility, is it a different kind of utility than the heart that wants to get angry and is motivated by that, right? Because sometimes it can it can seem like, and this is wrong view, that equanimity might be not be as strong as a force. And especially when we're relating to um, our wider communities. Like we have some say over how we act as individuals, but we really don't have any control over the wider communities that we are part of. Right? And it can seem like in order to advocate, in order to act, in order to support change, that we need to summon up some big, strong energy to do that, right? To raise some hell. And it can seem like the only way to do that is with anger at times, or a big force like that. But the truth is that anger is such a strong force, it's a reactive energy, and it tends to burn out quickly, right? You've probably noticed this, and I certainly have, When I've gotten myself all worked up, angry, frustrated, whatever, I almost want to take a nap like an hour later. It's really hard, right? Because there's like a big burst of energy and then it depletes us. But in contrast, the power of love, what's that like? What is the power of love like? What is the force in our heart? Do Do you ever get tired from being too loving? Do you ever find yourself like, oh, I need to take a nap because I just love my kids so much? (laughs) Not really. But we can experiment. We can explore that. Like, what's the utility? Is it useful to have a heart that's full of love that wants to respond and is also fully accepting the truth of things? Right? Like, I have a a beautiful uh, niece in my life, and she's in her 20s, and I was in my 20s once, And it's not easy to be in your 20s. There's a lot of, like, figuring a lot of things out. Who am I in relationship to the world? Who do I want to have in my inner circle? What kind of job or career do I want to have? And so I really feel for her. And sometimes I can see the train wreck that's approaching. And it really, and I love her so much. And I can tell her that, but I can't stop that from happening for her. Right? She has to kind of take those steps she has to feel the impact of her choices love love is an abundant feeling in the heart but it has its limitations right not on my heart it's good for my heart to feel that tender but it's also good for my heart to feel like oh yeah and you can't stop this from happening and maybe it won't happen but I can't stop it from happening or not happening right That's the power, the strength of equanimity. That strength of equanimity that can hold the tenderness of love. And when the train wreck does happen, then it's that heart that's like, oh, broken. And the strength of love that still can say, oh, this is really the way it is. I'm not going to turn away from this or pretend like it's not happening. Because it's actually true, right? It doesn't mean that I like it. Or it doesn't mean that I want that, but it just means that I'm not denying it. That's the equanimity, right? It's not condoning behavior or acting like it's okay in any way, but it's it's just accepting. So it actually propels engagement, both in interpersonal ways and in broader ways. Because that engagement you know my capacity to stay engaged and in my life in my relationships is is really needs to be fueled by something right not a goal like if i had a goal that she my niece do x and if she didn't do x and i would withdraw my love or i would 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 withdraw my engagement for her life that would be really heartbreaking I don't want that. But I also want to, and I I don't want to demand her to be the way I want her to be either, or make the choices that I want her to make. You know, I don't want her to have to live my life. I want her to live her life, right? So I have to find a way to stay engaged with her, to accept her choices, and the only way to do that is to both love her and understand that this is her life. This is her life to both love the world so much that I want to stay engaged in social movements with protesting things that aren't right and also fully accept that this is the way it is. And I can only continue my engagement if I can really do both, let my heart break completely wide open when that's what's called for, when love meets suffering, right? And also fully, Except that this is, this is really the way it is. My mindfulness practice calls me to see the truth, and I'm not going to turn away from this truth because this is the way it is. As I was preparing for what I might say, I came across this video. Um, this video of a journalist in Australia, who he did a little five minute. Outro from his news program. Um, he's a Muslim journalist and he felt some responsibility to speak to um, the Christchurch killings, the 49 people who were killed in the mosque in New Zealand.
1: <coughs>
0: and I was. I've watched this video so many times now. It's just five minutes long, but I was so moved by his his own lived ex, expression of equanimity. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but he starts off by his voice is shaking. He talks about feeling responsibility and to say something, though he didn't know what to say, and his words were probably not going to be that, all that great or that perfect. And then, and saying that he was gutted is the word he used scared utterly hopeless with a quivering voice a quivering heart he said those words like I felt utterly hopeless and you could just sense his pain right and my own pain it's not like this is so far away and he said but I would be lying to you if I said that I was surprised And then he goes on to make this very wise statement about karma, the impact of thoughts and actions over time, and pointing to how this isn't the first time something like this has happened. And we are responsible to the words and actions that lead to the next words and actions, right? So anytime we, as people, spew words of hate they will always have an impact and this is the law of karma right that our words really matter and he he talked about the silence in the mosque and you know the real innocence of people who are going there just for their spiritual practice the way we come to common ground for ours and how you know the assault the intense assault the murder of people in that kind of situation and just that real impact like just letting that receiving the real impact of that without any denial and accepting that this has been built over time right this action has been fueled by other actions has been fueled by other words that we all that we all take in and not just in this way, but we're always planting seeds for future response, right? We're always, everything that we say or do has an impact. And not to get tight about that, but it's just the truth, right? It's just the truth. Like the words that I'm saying right now, for better or for worse, will have an impact, They have an impact on my heart, They have an impact on yours as you're receiving them. We can't deny that, that's just real. Right. So he makes these, what I felt like these important statements that are central to our understanding of equanimity, just that we don't have control. We can be sure that there's some impact, but we don't have control over what that impact is. So we need to be responsible for the things that we say so that we can... You know, support a healthy together, a healthy interconnection with human beings and build something, come together. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? The Buddha described equanimity as the conditioned state that most resembles the awakened mind. It feels like freedom. It's that taste of freedom, that ability to stand up in the middle of even the most difficult of moments in our lives and say, yes, this is the truth, and I'm not gonna turn away, I'm not gonna deny this reality, right? The reality that our words and actions matter, and I'm gonna let my heart be full in every moment I'm going to encourage and cultivate this full, loving, benevolent attitude of mind so that my heart can be sensitive in the moments it needs to be sensitive and feel fully the impact of our lives without turning away. And also, just like this journalist, really embrace what we're going to do now. Like, what am I going to do now? And let the next move come from that, that, the strength of love that the first one came from. Thanks for listening. We have about 15 minutes, time for comments, questions, objections, whatever. That's how we grow.
2: Hi, I'm Shannon. Um, so... Um during your talk one word that really came to mind and you did end up saying it later too is the one that our society really tends to frown upon and it's sensitive and um you know growing up it's just always been there goes Shannon they're being sensitive again and um you know it's it's something that um you know, it's always been like, you know, everyone has saw me that way. And it's always been such, like viewed as such a negative thing. And that kind of c- comes part with like the femininity thing, where it's like, everyone's afraid to be feminine, you know, sensitive and feminine. And um, but, you know, I think, you know, there's, there can be benefits with that, like with sensitivity and just being sensitive to other people how other people are feeling and all of that and when you add that sense of equanimity with it um you know it like the the amount of suffering is like depleted a lot because you said okay you say okay it's like this now but meanwhile you're still sensitive to what other people are feeling. Because a lot of people, like, they just associate sensitivity with suffering. And it's just like, well, if you're su- sensitive to other people, you know, you're just going to suffer. You have to lock yourself in, put your guard up, and, and you know, not let anyone in. But um, it's just something I really thought about when, during your talk, is, you know, the, the benefits that can come with being sensitive.
0: Thank you, Shannon. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, you're in good company here at Common Ground. We're on the process. This is what our practice is about. It's really in the process of being in the process of sensitizing, right, of becoming more and more sensitive to the truth of our experiences, whatever they are.
1: Uh, yeah, my name's Dave, and I think uh, during your talk, Shelley, that it seems to me that you know I'm I'm st- kind of going back to the beginning, and and you know what is mindfulness? What is awareness? It's like I I, I I struggle with that, but but I think what what I've come back to is just like the reading and the talks that I've listened to, and uh, kind of provides a basis for. Uh, Uh, starting on the path but without that uh, you need you need a little bit of that striving for that information I think or I do and then it's just a matter of uh, kind of opening up and uh, being experiencing things in the body and being aware of that experience that that allows me to get anywhere in the and then the thinking part it I just have to let go of that and and it's and it's really the experience the 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 felt experience in the body and the awareness of that 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 really allows me to get anywhere
0: yeah and just remembering that we're not preferencing masculine energies over feminine energies but because we tend to overvalue masculine it's good for us to kind of go back and really explore like what are feminine energies what what other ways of knowing are there how do i how do i rest in my lived experience what does that mean like oh it's in the body it's not outside of the body just like that like you're saying Dave right so it's bringing us back into some balance and sometimes in order to bring back into balance we need to really go and overemphasize what we haven't looked at so much this is the what we're doing here, just waking up to all the ways that our lives, our lived experiences are invisible to us. So, any way that's even if the examples I used were somewhat provocative, like that's okay. Provocative is okay. Like, why is it, why is provocative not okay? That's how we wake up. Like, something provokes us in some way. You
2: know, you might be sitting there
0: going, like, oh, like I really like linear forms it's okay to like linear forms but what about other forms what about creative forms what about messiness what about talking in the dharma hall (laughs) radical idea what about moving or singing like are those valid forms of practice too so we just get to explore like experiment like the buddha did And the in the buddha's experimentation he found his way to some balance like, oh, awakening is not outside the body. It's not by eating a single grain of rice every day. It's actually finding his way back to some pleasant and realizing, oh, pleasant has a place in our lives. Pleasant has a place in our lives. Thank you. Spruce.
3: Yeah, more of the, the feminine, the responsive energy. Like to give it some different wording too, so we, you know, like responsive and proactive. Um, and and what I'm thinking about a lot lately is acceptance. And I love, you know, the images you had of just standing, just standing in whatever it is, and and the acceptance that uh, that is needed in in order to do that. And how intellectually, I've talked about acceptance a lot. I've talked to other people about acceptance. But what I'm really thinking about now is just the messiness of acceptance. That it's not about, it's about standing in whatever it is and standing in the reaction to whatever that is. And how I think that a lot of times I've tried to tidy up acceptance that even though I've said, well, it's not about liking it, but there's a part of me that's still thinking, yeah, if I could just stand in it long enough, maybe it wouldn't bother me. And then I get into just repressing it. So I'm going to think about that a lot, that dance with acceptance and the messiness.
0: I like that. I like that you brought the receptive into the room, too. Like, that. that's right. Feminine, embracing the feminine is about... Receptive. And responsive. Responsive, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we can often, we often really are clear about where we want to be, but we forget to be where we are. Right. So that messiness, right, like the reactive hearts, like how to find love and equanimity in those moments too. How to really honor the stories, like the the strength of the stories, even if the stories are painful, like the stories in our hearts and minds, like the story of I'm not good enough or um, whatever it is for us, like honoring that story as a force in our life with some real equanimity. Like, oh, can I fully accept that this is a force in my life? without, that's not the same as saying, I'm trying to become that, right, and that that doesn't mean that we can't also honor the masculine and re- recognize that that's still a story, It's just a story, there's some wisdom there that understands that, but really to fully understand the force of, um, I'm not good enough, means that I have to go back and look, maybe do some therapeutic work, even, and go like, oh, look at, it's, it, the roots of the story go way back, and they're in the body, in the heart, in the mind, in these really subtle ways. Can I accept that? Can I accept that truth? Time for one or two more questions or comments or objections?
4: So I had a comment or something. Um so I really just liked I liked the whole thing but my favorite part was what I related to the most was uh you can never you never get tired of loving your kids um like you don't feel tired uh from loving them too much and uh that's something I've been working with a lot um with my kids especially at bedtime um, <laughs> which will test your patience. Um, but we read them a lot of stories, and they they want more and more stories. And my wife and I are both writers, and so that's that's we've created monsters. <laughs> is what happened. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of nights where I just like I oh, just want to get through like all these stories, and uh, and I get tired. And sometimes I will fall asleep in the middle of a story, and uh, they always wake me up. Um, But then there's nights where I really try to be um, mindful, and I try to, like, just read it as an act of love, like, this is a gift that I'm giving them. And I even try to, like, say the words without thinking about the words, Just, just pure attention, um, and just to see what comes out of what would happen if I just read these next few words and i didn 't think at all i just it just they just kind of came out because i don 't really need to think when I read I, which i had just learned was a was a thing that you could read something without thinking and uh what i 've found is um I have plenty of energy um it, and uh i mean there 's a limit but uh I still yeah, I, I just want to give, and and the love I think just comes through. Not maybe like a, it's a different taste of love, but uh, but they really respond to it, and they're not constantly just wanting more and more and more. They seem to be more satisfied with what I have to give them. There's a little less grasping and um, tightness to it, um, but but. Just uh, just the phrasing you used alone just really uh, uh, set me uh, on a high, so thanks for that.
0: True equi- equanimity comes without any attachment, right? It's just a pure expression. It's a feeling that's there without any attachment to outcome, which is, I think, the point I was trying to make about engagement that that energy of engagement can continue to be generated because there's no you know attachment to an outcome and I can still be wholehearted with every you know I'm thinking about some of the anti-racism work that I've done in my life or the activism is that it's not that you know I've I really care about outcomes and I'm gonna stay in the game no matter what the outcomes are because it's just it feels like the right thing to do. And there's a lot of um, energy, like loving energy, to make the next move, like because I really care, because my heart is really breaking, or because I really love the people in my life, or the people, you know, in the news, or my godchildren, like whatever is fuel that loving fuel. That just propels the engagement because it's the right move, it's the right move, it's the right move. And there's a lot of acceptance. Like this is the truth. I'm not gonna I'm not in denial of the truth. So I can keep moving ahead because I'm not in denial and I'm wholehearted about it. It seems like that's was the energy, you know, that you're tapping into in the reading of stories. Like that love, like, ah, oh, I can read endless stories. <laughs> Almost. Almost.
5: (laughs) Um, I really like the quote that it's just sticking with me. Um, A radical, something like a radical invitation to feel. And and I think so much of our society just pulls us away from going in and feeling, like it's too. We don't have. It's like we don't have tools. But this practice gives us tools. So like, go in, be with this, and feel. And I think um, someone close to me just passed away uh, a couple of days ago, and it's, it's so apparent that I mean. There's this feminine that maybe is more open, vulnerable. I don't know. I don't want to say um, real limiting things. but, But when death happens, it seems like the men around that, the masculine energy around that, is more open. And it shifts. And it's like, oh, you're feeling. But so often there's just this denying of that for so many people like oh you don't you don't get that you don't get to only when people die you can you can feel and you can show that yeah
1: yeah
0: I mean what comes to mind is just that you know equanimity in order to feel the force of equanimity we have to still be able to feel the feel all the feelings right and the force of pain too because we won't know our capacity to stand up in the middle of anything unless we feel the difficulty of that right like oh I have these feelings and it's really hard to have these feelings let me see what happens but we won't know that until we unless we continue to be more and more sensitive right and sometimes the finality of death for example is hard to avoid it's hard to avoid feelings when there's something that potent and in, you know, the case of social movements, too, like I said what I said about anger burning out, but there are lots of moments when anger is the, is the strongest force in my heart. And so there's a truth to that, too, like fully accept it. Like, oh, this is the way it is. What am I going to do with that, right? And that's just, that's real and human, just like anything else. So receiving, accepting Ah, this is the way it is. That's that's how equanimity is established in moment after moment after moment in our lives and being able to be sensitive and cultivating that capacity. Thanks, Leah. We I have to leave it here? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,